hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You can't do that. Why, you ask? Well, because first, you're a woman and pretty much only guys are successful at that. And second, you're a lesbian. Queer folks don't do this kind of thing. Bullshit, she said. And she did it anyway and now is one of the most successful women doing it. Who are we talking about? None other than Patricia Redhawk, one of the most successful women out there building a real estate investment portfolio that is allowing her to support her family, wife and two kids, as well as build her own home in the Pacific Northwest where they dreamed of living. You're listening to Queer Money episode 253, and you're in for a fabulous discussion about queer folks breaking barriers, learning lessons, and doing whatever the beep we want to because we love it and we're good at it and it fills a need in the world today. Stick around to hear Patricia's story and her tips on what you can do to start investing in real estate if that's your thing. Have a show topic suggestion or a question? Then email us at questions at debtfreeguys.com and we'll answer it in an upcoming episode. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Join our movement to build a community of happier, healthier, and wealthier gay men by getting your free copy of the five building blocks of a happy gay life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. Well, Patricia Redhawk, like you said in the outset, when we were having a little bit of a conversation before the show, this has been a long time coming. We are super excited to have you as a queer woman on the show to talk about a subject that I think scares a lot of people in the LGBT community. (laughs) So thank you very much for coming on Queer Money. Well, you guys, I, absolutely. It's been a long time coming, and, and uh, I'm just delighted to be asked. And I feel like, truthfully, that you guys are just friends I haven't met yet. So um, I'm delighted to put name with face and, and talk. And, you know, ironically, when you guys were living in Pennsylvania and I was living in Pennsylvania, we actually didn't connect there, but now we're both on the west side of yes. the country. And so I know. I, I was going to say that. that. I thought it was so interesting. We were living relatively close to each other. Yeah, indeed. And we could have met up and the whole COVID thing, I think, had a... Kicked in. Yeah. yeah, it prevented us from from being able to meet up with you in person. And now we're in Las Vegas and you're in... Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we're even further apart, but we're actually connecting <laughs> in this manner, right? Miracle of technology. Yeah. So uh, just for all of you listening, uh, part of the way that we connected with Patricia was through the Queer Money Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a group of individuals who are interested in improving themselves in a financial way. Uh, this is one of the things that John and I have said over and over again on this podcast, our goal is to help the LGBT community become a financially strong community because by becoming financially strong, we have less things to be concerned about and could put more of our time and effort and our money towards advancing the rights and the things that our communities continues to struggle with. Mm -hmm. So Patricia, uh, you're included in a book, The Only Woman in the Room, 
which is about women in real estate investing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that for all of you who have listened to or watched information about real estate investing, it is a very male-dominated industry. In the book, you say, growing up with parents who taught you about building wealth is not required to build wealth. So don't use this as an excuse to get your ass off the couch, <laughs> which I, th- I say is brilliant and true. Right for mm-hmm. for so many people, we kind of believe this, but we need sometimes someone else to say this to us. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you, my parents came out of the uh, came out of the Depression era, and I think those of us who who have um, older family relatives and, and parents who did that have a sense of there's a frugality associated with those folks, and I completely understand it. I mean, I you know every family has stories of of having lost everything, or you know Oklahoma Dust Bowl, or you know having to pile in to live with relatives, etc. I mean, it, lots of folks have have stories from from the Depression era. And my parents were classic products. They're very working class folks. Nobody in my family went to college. And really my my mom's best advice, financial advice to me was to, both my parents, frankly, was to get a steady job, mm-hmm. maybe a union job, get a steady job with benefits. And so their, you know, their career expectation, their framework was that you would be with some company or some job for 30 or 40 years, get a gold watch at the end, retire. Well, that's not how I grew up. And that, and there was this sort of generational shift that occurred. And I grew up in the Silicon Valley, which is really the land of what if. And as a result, I, I ended up with sort of a, a very different paradigm. And it really empowered me in a lot of ways. And one of the things I think it did is to start to think about to be intentional about how I wanted to live my life. And when I started to become more intentional about how I wanted to live my life, I realized that I needed to master finance and I needed to master money, but I had no idea where to start. This was kind of bringing it full circle. I learned about credit cards and charge cards the hard way and got spanked by them. And then because no one taught me the difference between a credit card or a charge card or how to use them and how to use them appropriately. And I'll tell you, we have a mutual friend of of the Facebook group and and the podcast, and, and that's Allison Walker. And Allison Walker and I knew each other in our very early 20s. And Allison, who's the daughter of a banker, is the first person in my life who actually showed me how a budget works. And I had no idea how a budget would work, how you adjust it over time, how do you anticipate costs, and etc. I had no idea. And she literally, she probably, she's going to listen to this and be surprised, but Allison, thank you. That was <laughs> game changing for me. But you're right. And here's what I'll say about investing in real estate per se um, versus stock market, although it's true for both. It requires your commitment to education. And understanding how whatever your investment vehicle of choice is, whether it's stocks or or real estate or kind of what have you, it really requires an investment of education and time over time. You cannot let up on your education. You have to continually listen to uh, podcasts and and read books and educate yourself and maybe a book club, talk with other folks, elevate your your game, your educational game about what it is that you're interested in 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 investing. At no point did I ever want to be a stockbroker that was never you know, stocks are just not my thing. But specifically, I'll say about real estate, and frankly, all the women in in that book that I share credit with, none of us knew how to invest in real estate from the beginning. We all learned on our own. You know, and unlike um, any kind of degree program where you can go get a college degree in something, you know, we're all self-taught. 
We all figured this out on our own through active educational process. So my parents were startled with the kind of investing I'm doing. Um, they both passed away now relatively recently, but they were both startled with the kind of investing I, I was doing. And even my dad, at the end of his life, he had been a real estate broker for a good number of years and ended up becoming a, an appraiser. He was dumbfounded with the kinds of strategies and techniques that me and other you know, real estate investors were using. So sometimes you, you end up going quite a bit outside of your familial comfort zone when it comes to money. And money is always a charged subject, I think, in, in families queer, straight, or, or, and what have you. And so it's, it's important to really remain committed to that. I am curious, you say that your, your father was in real estate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you started to get into the career choices that mm-hmm. you wanted, was that the first thing you did was jump into real estate? What no, is your kind fact, of path to? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so kind of take from the beginning. So I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I worked in the construction trade initially as a carpenter. I learned residential remodeling. And that's actually how I learned kind of the basics of, of how folks flip houses. There were some investors working in San Jose, Almaden Valley that I knew of, and and, uh, and so I got a chance to sort of see how that was done. I was putting myself through college at the time. I had joined the California Army National Guard in order to be able to do that, using the GI Bill and my own working, working full-time. I've been in construction, and, and I've been in the military, but then when I was in the military, I decided that I, I was a little lost, and got and my, my unit got mobilized for the first Persian Gulf War, and while I was there, I realized I really wanted some more purpose to my life than what I'd been up to that date, and so I actually decided to become a physician, and I came home and changed my major and, and marched my way through an undergraduate degree and got myself into, into medical school, and, and I'm an MD today, and, and I practiced medicine up until 2000. 2010. And then it wasn't until after that that I decided that medicine was not going to work out for me for the long haul. You know, there's the difference between the career and, and a job. Mm-hmm. And I love practicing medicine and I miss my patients all the time, but ultimately it was not going to provide the kind of life that I wanted to live. And I think American healthcare system is broken and I didn't want to put the best 20, 25 years of my life into that. And so when I left medicine in 2010, it took me a couple of years to kind of figure it out. And then I realized, oh, I have sort of all these experiences in a skill set that really lends itself well to investing in real estate. And so I came back around and put together, did an enormous amount of education and determined the market cycle, uh, the market location, what strategies were appropriate for, for that kind of place in time. And I went to town and built myself a, a really nice cash flow uh, portfolio of single family homes. And so to speak specifically about my dad, it was a little ironic because my dad, I think, understood how real estate worked. He was a very good salesman, but he doesn't understand about investing. And I'll tell you, one of the interesting things for those of you who are listening or have an interest in becoming a real estate investor, the pathway to becoming a real estate investor is not becoming a real estate agent or broker. It can be, but it's typically not. The vast majority of real estate investors I know are not agents or brokers. People mistake the two, but in fact, they're, I would say, adjacent careers, but certainly have some overlap. But becoming an agent or broker is not at all required to be an investor. And um, so having said that, my dad never sort of figured out how to to become an investor, although he's uh, very successful at the real estate brokerage game. But a couple of California property uh, value downturns through the course of his career, he decided to get out and become a civil servant. And, and then he became an appraiser, land appraiser. So, 
I will say, having read through the book, uh, Only Woman in the Room, and for those of you who are not familiar, this book is a collection of, I want to say, stories and, and personal experiences and reflection of women who are in the real estate investing circle. And there's a variety, a whole variety of, of information that's contained in this book that can I think be very refl- reflective of us of ourselves. You know, it allows us to see somebody else's experience and say, "Oh, I I can res- that resonates with me. I understand mm-hmm. that." One of the things that I absolutely loved about the way that you wrote your section of this book, your chapter in this book, was you talked about how life continually is teaching you something, and I think that many of us forget that. That there's so yeah. many lessons that we can learn from life that can be based on the good things that happen to us and the bad things that happen to us. Mm-hmm. I like that you did this because I think for for most of us, we we rarely take the time to reflect back and say, okay, what did, what did I learn from this experience and what will it help me do tomorrow mm-hmm. in a year, in five years, right? What can that experience or those experiences help? How can they help me? So I'm, I'm kind of curious, one of the lessons that you talk about is growing self-confidence by taking risks, which I think is something that folks in the queer community seem to struggle with. Do you think yeah. that it's harder for, for folks in the queer community to do this? And what would you encourage our listeners to do to get started on this path? The, not only the path of taking risks, but specifically the path towards real estate investing. Yeah, I, I think it is uh, far more difficult for us. I think that as queer folks... We spend, kind of depending on how we come to be in the world, I, I think many of us struggle and spend a lot of time sort of teasing apart who it is and how we're going to be in the world. And that, you know, and, and time is finite. So if during your teens and your 20s, if you're fixated on something else and you're not really being introspective and not figuring that out for yourself, it's it's kind of difficult to figure out sort of who you are on the LGBT spectrum or even that you are. So I think time is finite and say you're training for the Olympics or you're in college or you've got a full-time job or you're homeless and you have some really you know kind of arduous way in which you have to live your life that takes time and so it takes away from our ability to sort of process and figure out who we are and and kind of settle in the space in the space of our lives that is I think that it is harder for LGBT folks having said that it's not impossible and like many of us I mean I think the LGBT community uh, across the board is we are phenomenally resilient mm-hmm. we have hustle we have grit we have fabulosity everywhere and so leaning on our friends and working together for common goals and and um, just being able to support ourselves you know the communities out there and that whole idea about your chosen family you know long before marriage equality rolled around um, you know there are lots of chosen family and we still do it to this day this idea about building self-confidence is actually something I learned early on from a therapist. I was seeing a therapist in my early 20s because my mom was an active alcoholic. In fact, was a drunk her entire life. And I was trying to figure that piece of it out for myself, how my mom's alcoholism had affected me, etc. And one of the things my therapist said to me, I think I was maybe 19, 20, 21 years old, was she said, you know, you could really use some more self-confidence. And I said, I agree. How do you do that? And she quite literally said, you take risks. 
she said it's you know it's not recklessness but you take risks and we would use the term like you know stretch yourself outside your comfort zone I'm a big believer in reverse engineering. So if I can figure out where it is that I want to go, but I have no idea how to get there, I sort of reverse engineer the steps and and figure out what information do I need? What people do I need to know? How do I get there? And to the extent that you can sort of identify all the factors and I try to figure out from where I am and where I want to go and and how how can I get there and reverse engineer those steps. I think that taking risks and increasing my own self-confidence over time has allowed me to think bigger and broader about what my life might look like and, and the things that I want. So I think that taking risks in terms of jobs you might take, you know, you want a skill set that you don't currently have. And if you can't get a paid job, do it in a volunteer way so that you can still acquire that, that skill set, for instance. That's taking a risk. You gain self-confidence by doing that. You want to ask out the the cutest woman in the room or the cutest guy in the room, and you might get shot down. Hey, it happens to to all of us. But the point is, you know, you figure out a way to make conversation and and, and make a connection and build rapport. And I think it's it's not insurmountable to gain confidence, but it really does requiring taking some risks, small ones first, baby steps, and then that accumulation really just doesn't grow over time. And then you know, you're my age in your mid fifties and. And I'm feeling like even though my knees are shot, I'm I'm a badass. I can do anything I want. So, you know, it's <laughs> but it's a process. And to this day, I was having a conversation with a guy in my office that you know I was in the military for six years, and and it served me well. I got exactly out of it what I thought I needed at the time, and was super important. It doesn't work for everybody, but it worked for me. But the point is, is that that was an experience in which I continue to mine even now, which kind of continually startles me. But you know, when I think about how to organize my company, how to organize communication or an attitude, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I can harvest that experience. And I think that's one of the things that we need to do as we continue to mature is think about, you know, the, the ways in which we have been enriched by, by failures and, and wins and the struggle along the way. And again, you know, it really requires um, some quiet reflection at times. It's like, what did I really learn about that? Or the kind of the well-crafted conversation with a, you know, with a, a counseling professional. You know, if you're trying to tease apart and and figure out what what gems you can pull from, again, both you know, challenges and struggles as as well as wins in your life. So uh, that's all wonderful. And I'm curious, maybe you've already sort of touched on this, but has there been a business decision or business risk that you took? That scared you at the time, uh, made your knees knock a little bit. But then in hindsight, you're like, wow, that was not only was it valuable and and, and beneficial for me and my career, um, but it actually wasn't as scary as I thought it was. Nothing that scared me was as scary as I thought it was. I just got through it. So I want to say that however (laughs) scary it is, that's as scary as it is. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. And I think that the point with that is it may be scary and you may take the risk and you may fail, but... There's still value in that. Right. Absolutely. We learn something Absolutely. from it, right? Absolutely. So I'll tell you, when I, when I first left medicine in 2010, you know, you spend all that time and all that money and you get a job that, you know, you're a physician, you're, you know, you have social status and, you know, somebody finds out you're a physician, you have this instant sort of credibility and all that's true. And so it's a, this is a great career and, and I have dear friends who are doing a fantastic job during COVID even uh, since we're recording during that time period. Um, and I have to say that when I made the decision to leave, my closest friends, thought I had lost my mind. Um, They're like, why would you do this? I thought my mom still couldn't figure it out, shaking her head kind of, you know, for 
for for a long time. And so that was a big risk. And especially since I didn't necessarily have a clear plan on the backside, I just knew that practicing medicine was not going to work for me for the long haul. So I pretty much burned the boats and, and I did not renew my medical license. So I have a beautiful diploma on my wall, but I do not have an active medical license and don't intend to. When I moved into to real estate, I, I felt like I had done a lot of preparation. I'm a big believer in that. And so circling back to education again and, and preparation, I talked to a lot of folks, did a lot of reading and, and a lot of really hard studying. And so I felt fairly confident in moving forward in the residential house space. Since I had been a carpenter, I knew how residential remodeling worked. And so, you know, ugly, scary, crappy looking houses didn't scare me because I understood how to build. And that was a big plus. And again, something that happened earlier on in my life. And, and here I am, you know, 20, 25 years later, applying it in real life. So something to be said for for collecting those skills and experiences. But I have to say, it was scary kind of stepping out there. And it's like, okay, I'm going to depend on a bunch of crappy little houses to support me. How's this going to go? And it went pretty well. I went all in, really committed, and was not afraid to ask questions. That's a big one. I wasn't afraid to say, I have no clue how that works. You know, speak slowly to me. I'm sure I can get it. Again, but having the confidence to ask questions and say, I don't know, and ask people who were smarter than I was – is you know one of those gifts that that I've been able to acquire with my own maturity. So, you know, that was when I first started in the you know, you know, 10 years ago or so. But I have to say I'm I'm in the process of doing something now or I'm sort of leveling up in my real estate investing game and yeah, I'm scaring the hell out of me. Um <laughs> and but I'm I'm still doing it every day. I mean, and basically to to kind of explain the the leveling up process is I crafted a, a portfolio of single family houses that have tenants in them and after paying off principal, interest, tax, insurance, cash flows to me. And me and my family live off of that cash flow. I spend that cash flow. But at this point, I'm actually doing something much larger. I'm putting together a real estate investing fund, which is basically a private equity real estate investing fund. And and I work with accredited investors, and we should define that at some point. And it'll be a probably about a six and a half to, to seven and a half million dollar fund. And we're doing investing up here in the Pacific Northwest. I've never done anything um, that large before with that many zeros, but the process of doing it is well within my, my skill set. So that's scaring the hell out of me too. But um, you know, you gotta do it anyway. Feel the fear, but move forward. I love it. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. It seems to me like what you are doing is you're you're taking it from not I'm not just going to go out and take the risk, right? You're going to understand the cost of that risk. And I, this is something you say in the book. You say yeah. determine the cost of attaining your dream before committing mm-hmm. and then once you have committed, pay the price without wavering. So yes. it's it sounds like that's what you're you're doing with with a lot of this is that and I think that's the reason why a lot of people have fear of taking risk is because mm-hmm. they don't understand what the real risk is involved and they don't want right. to or learn what the real risk is and how to minimize it. Yeah, this is exactly true. And thanks for bringing up that point because, you know, for those of you who are listening and might think that you're kind of intrigued with real estate investing and you see it as a way for it to be more secure than, for instance, stock market investments, and, and we should later on in the show kind of contrast some of those characteristics. 
but find somebody who's doing what you think you might want to do and start talking to them. You know, there's these groups in every major city and, and area in the whole country called RIAs, R-E-I-A, stands for Real Estate Investor Association. It's a huge national network. And I know there's a RIA in your town, and there might even be a few of them. Start going to those. Start talking to people who are already doing what it is that you want to do and educate yourself. Don't ask them to teach you what all the things that you could learn in a book or on a podcast. I'll tell you, like, you know, I, I get folks, I have students and, and I do coaching. Initially, if, if folks come to me and they want to know big picture concepts and they haven't bothered to do their own homework, I don't have time for that because it's, you know, do your own homework. And so and that's also a part of mitigating your risk is understanding process, understanding basic terms, understanding nuance and complexity. And, you know, do your homework first and do a lot of it and keep doing it. So I think that you're never going to know 100% of the information before you move in to the decision arena. I'm at a point in my life now where I feel like if I know 65% of the information, that's fine. I'll, I can move forward with making decision yes or no or, or what have you because I know I can land on my feet and I know how to ask for help, etc. And those of you who are starting off new might want to feel like you might need to know more than that. But I'll tell you, um, at some point, you're, you're just going to have to move forward. But that's the whole idea about it can be hard you know, investing in real estate, anything can be hard that you want to move into. But determining that the end goal is really what you want and you're committed to pay the price. What that means is dealing with, with things that go sideways and make a mistake. Well, fix it and move on. You've learned from it. You won't ever make that mistake again. And so that's what I mean about, you know, once you've determined the price, kind of whatever it is, is the price like, I'm going to spend 10 to 15 hours a week educating myself about real estate investing, and I'm going to look at these blogs and, and read these books and whatever, and I'm going to go to a RIA and I'm going to like, talk to myself and talk to the folks and, and really you know, lean into that. Then commit to doing that. And to have more information and you feel like you want to take the next step, there are lots of ways in which to ask for help and, and move forward. I think that folks, and it's not queer specific, I think that people, they get paralyzed by analysis. We call it analysis paralysis. They get talked out of doing things because it's outside of their family's comfort zone or their friend circle comfort zone. So if you are sort of attracted to real estate investing, but nobody you knew does that, and they'll say, oh, gee, that's all risky. You might lose your shirt and blah, blah, blah. Well, there's so many things that are risky, and you could lose your shirt in a, in a million different ways. But I think often we let kind of naysayers and doubters kind of talk us out of stuff. And so for anyone who's even remotely interested – Commit yourself and, and, you know, at least read five or six books and get into some podcast. You might decide that, oh, God, no, this is way overwhelming. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm just going to turn it over to a financial planner and, and set it and forget it. Well, hey, then at least you, you've dabbled into it and, you, and you've done some reading. But for me, what I decided is I wanted to lead a very specific kind of life. I wanted to have a lot more fun than I was having. I wanted to have children and, and wanted to spend time with, with them and really being an active parent. There were experiences I wanted to have in the world. And, and I knew that I could do that if I had financial independence. And then figuring out how I was going to do that was really key. And that was the price I was willing to pay. I was willing to listen to podcasts and read books 12 to 15 hours a week 
there are few people who match me in that, but that's that's my minimum 12 to 15 hours a week I spend on education in addition to running an East Coast company and a West Coast company, which is a, an awful lot of, of time. But it's not just real estate investing. I, I learned about broader business concepts in, in the economy, in markets, et cetera. But that's part of the price that I am willing to pay repeatedly to stay on top of my game and, and maximize my opportunities. Yeah. When we were talking before we started recording, Ashley Wilson, the woman who put together the book, she mentioned that she definitely wanted your story in the book and came to you early on because not only are you a woman in this industry that is male-dominated, you're also a queer woman in this industry. And I think that a lot of us as queer people, I think that a lot of us automatically tend to focus on the fact that our otherness makes us so different that we don't necessarily see ourselves being successful or being a part of the group of individuals who achieve that level of success. But you just, in the book, you say that queer folks, women, people of color, Mm -hmm. those of us who are different, that we need grit to achieve our dreams. Do you think maybe that that grit is more grit than is needed by straight white men? Or how do you think it is different? Absolutely. Absolutely. Straight white men. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 60%, over 60% of a wealth in America is inherited. Inherited. So take every rich person, however, whatever definition you want to use. You know, in America, 60% of those folks inherited that money. They didn't make it. But the good news, so which is kind of ridiculous um, when you think about it. But the good news is that means that about 40% of us did not. Here's what I think. Straight straight white men, they've got the golden ticket. And, you know, I work in those circles. I know those guys and they're friends too. We work together and alongside and collaborate all the time. But here's what I can tell you about queer folks. Queer folks, in our DNA, we have hustle and grit. Because for us to stand up and claim ourselves is not an easy path. It doesn't matter how you got there. But when you come to terms with your queerness and in whatever uh, shade and flavor it is, man, that is yours. You own that. And you have come a long way to do that and are to be commended for owning it. And it's kind of a process of ownership throughout our life. So I would say hustle and grit is in our DNA. And having said that, we all have to hustle uh, to the extent that um, we don't have things handed to us. This is an industry in particular in which you know you can't go out and get a degree. This is real estate investing, and, and everybody hits the ground running. So everybody has hustle. My hustle is the 12 to 15 hours a week of education that I put in, and I'm a freak like that. I totally admit <laughs> that. Uh, I love to learn. I love to read, and, and that is not required. So I, I'm sure I'm scaring some folks. That's not required for to be successful in this field. I use that as an example, but not a benchmark at all. But that's part of my hustle is stay on top of the game, have those conversations with folks who are far better at doing what they do than I than I am. And, and you know, I have achieved far greater than I am. I have those conversations with folks and, I, and I'm grateful for the nuggets they impart. But in order to stay here, to stay at the table of real estate investors who are doing well through a pandemic, to stay at the table of investors who do well regardless of the market cycle, you know, ups and downs, et cetera, that requires real grit. And that means that, you know, I've got friends who in 2008, they were doing exactly what they should have. They weren't being reckless with their leverage. And by leverage, I mean their mortgages and their refinancing. But when everything crashed, they lost their entire portfolio. And these weren't folks who were, who were, who I say, being reckless, coloring outside the lines. They were really 
the parameters that they had set up for themselves financially were totally appropriate, and yet they still lost their portfolios. Grit is those people lick their wounds, figure out what needed to happen next, learn from those lessons, and are back on their game now. And that's what I mean about hustle and grit. But I think queer folks have a leg up on grit because, man, being it's hard to be queer. So again, harness the the same kind of determination that you had to establish yourself and own your shelf, and you know repackage that for for adventures in in other areas of your life. Exactly. I think that you know John and I have talked about this so many times on the podcast about how as folks who are different. There are that diversity that we can bring to the table for either the business that we work for or the business that we want to start or other experiences in our life. We can take that diversity and use it to our advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was having a funny conversation with a friend yesterday over lunch, and I said that my gender presentation is is uh, pretty masculine of center. So when I walk in a room... If you can't figure out I'm a Butch Dyke, you have no gaydar. <laughs> yeah, so, and guys, you know, and I, if I happen to talk about my wife, like, oh, what, you're gay? And I, I want to look at them like, oh, my God, are you serious? Where have you been for the last 30 years? You know, so what I find out about that, though, is that it, it, um, it's a kind of a social shorthand. So if I'm in a room full of folks and virtually everybody can figure out who I am and that I'm, I'm queer, and, and that's great because the people then who interact with me, who choose to interact with me, and ultimately who choose to do business with me, they've already self-selected. They've already decided, of course, she's a butch dyke. I don't care. She's smart. She's funny. She's kind. She's generous, blah, blah, blah. And I want to work with her. I want to be friends with her. I want to interact with her. You know, So it ends up being self-selecting. And I kind of love that right. because if you are not interested in, if you've got hangups about queer folks and you don't want to know me, talk with me, do business with me, great. You saved me so much time. Save yourself time via Condios, my friend, really. Yeah. So I, I, I think that being queer has been hugely beneficial. Two things. One is my last name, Red Hawk, stands out. And also, you know, I'm a queer dyke. So, you know, when I walk in, I'm meeting a, you know, bankers where I'm meeting other investors or, you know, something like that. And, and I'm memorable. And I use that to my advantage. I think those of us who are, who are queer, especially if we're the only queer person in the room, in the company, in the department, whatever, you know, being able to use that to our advantage is, is a real plus because people don't readily forget you. I see that as a huge advantage. And in particular, my presentation helps me because like I say, it's, it's kind of a social shorthand. And, and I use that to my advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love how you're positioning your, your queerness and, and the, the value that it brings. I'm curious for those queer folks who are thinking about getting into real estate investing themselves, they're just kind of dabbling mm-hmm. in the idea. How sure. has real estate investing changed or improved your life and, and that of your family? Wow. I don't even know where to start. So <laughs> let's back up for a second. The three of us together and, and are listening to us, we're going to craft a fabulous life for ourselves. Okay. So I don't care what it involves, maybe partner, maybe not. Kids, yes, no, whatever. You want to travel, whatever. The point is, Wall Street is actually trying to get us to drink some Kool-Aid, and I'm urging you to spit it out. Here's the deal. Wall Street would have you believe that financial independence is based on sort of a mountain of wealth that you invest, invest, invest in the stock market and you save. And, you know, 40 years later, you have this mountain of money and then you can retire and you're going to spoon feed yourself little amounts every month and live off that money. And hopefully you die before the money runs out. 
that's what I call the kind of the bullshit. Whoops, the bullshit. That's okay. Uh, myth We're all grown ups here. <laughs> and I'm saying no. Say no to that. Here's my thought. You know, when you go on those retirement calculators, how much do you need in order to retire? And it's like you know, 2.8 million. You're like, oh my god, I'm never going to do that. That's not the point. My point about financial independence is to figure out how much do you use in a single month? How much money do you use? And I don't mean living frugally. I mean, you know, your typical month of expenses and add in sort of the cost spread out over a month of like two vacations a year. So we're not talking frugal. We're just talking normal everyday life for you, including health insurance, whatever. Whatever that nut is, maybe it's 2000 maybe it's 8000 whatever. Figure out what that monthly amount is for you. That's your target. It's not the $2.8 million that you are supposed to acquire in order to retire. It's just enough cash flow every month to cover your monthly expenses. And that's a lot easier idea to digest, and it certainly is a lot easier to attain because – Really, what I was able to do is I ended up buying a handful of houses over the course of maybe two or three years and fix them up and, and, and put tenants in them and refinance them, et cetera, and pull some equity out. And my family lives off of that cash flow today. And that's the point. So for folks who are thinking they need a mountain of money, they really don't. You just need to figure out what it is that you need every single month. And once tenants get up and go to work and pay you rent every month and you are living off of that cash flow – and you, it's covering all your expenses, you're officially retired. You don't have to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's and Robert, and uh, I'll say that that's a, a lot okay. more attainable. Sorry, yeah, that's Robert Kiyosaki's definition of true wealth is having your cash flow being able to subsidize your living expenses. And once yeah, you that's, can attain certainly that, not the only one. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about the folks who are listening here that want to get into this or are, are considering yeah. dabbling. What pieces of advice would you give these individuals? I think sure. you've, you've kind of talked about a couple in this process, but what pieces of advice would you give us? So the first thing I would say to you is you need a really solid foundation. And there are a couple of books I would recommend and then also a, a website that I, re- I would recommend. A couple of books I would recommend is and in this order, if you have never read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you should read that first. It's not a hard read. It's not overly complicated. It's, you know, the, the ideas are, are simple and straightforward. And, you know, it's probably written at an eighth grade level. So it's not a financial book, despite the fact that he'll tell you it's, it's a book about accounting. But that's the first thing I would say. Read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. The second book I would recommend is actually his second book in that series. It's called Cash Flow Quadrant. Those two books will lay down some fundamental principles of investing, regardless of what it is you decide to go into. He happens to use real estate. I do as well. Those books aren't real estate specific, but he does use those as examples. I would start there. And then the second sort of step I would recommend is a great website online and a fantastic educational platform called biggerpockets.com. And they have a number of blogs and impressive forums, and they have a fantastic um, publishing arm uh, that has really taken off in the last couple of years. And I would start with those books. Here's why. They're well-written. They're well-reasoned. Um, they're written by folks who are experienced in the in the arena of real estate investment. There are num- Understand there are a number of different strategies that you could use. It's not just a matter of, gee, I do residential, or I do multifamily, or I do commercial. You know, subsections within those kind of larger areas. 
areas. But the Bigger Pockets library is excellent. Start with a with the titles that kind of intrigue you first. You, there's sort of no wrong place to start. Definitely one of the books I would recommend is, and now is a book by, I want to say, Jay Martin. And I believe it's called Investing in Real Estate Market Cycles or Understanding Market Cycles, something like that. But it's a Bigger Pockets book. And because that book will outline different strategies that can be used at different points in the market cycle, which is important to understand. I actually think we're going, heading into some economic downturn time. And so in the last of course, over the last year, I've actually pivoted. I'm no longer doing the strategy I was doing in, say, 2016, 17, 18, and 19. I'm doing something different now, and it's because I'm anticipating a, a downturn in the market. And so I'm repositioning my capital and my equity and my efforts to make sure that I sort of ride the new wave, as it were. So I hope that helps. Yeah. No, it's not, yeah, it's not great. We have a connection with a couple of folks over at Bigger Pockets. Uh, Mindy Jensen was one of the first people yes. that we connected with in the personal finance space, yeah. and uh, have. Oh, been, good. She's a she's a sweetheart. I, I I know of her, but I have never met her in person yet. So yeah, yeah she's, she's wonderful. She's awesome. We also had Chad Carson on the podcast, and he had uh, he wrote a book, Retire Early with Real Estate. Um, yeah. and I yeah. think that was his his focus was getting to that point, knowing your number, yeah. what it is you have to do. So all the books and the recommendations that you just gave are things that John and I have would wholeheartedly put our support behind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you say that real estate investing is simple, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. What advice would you have for someone who's a newbie (laughs) real estate investor and would like to get a little bit more involved with it? So if you're already investing in real estate, like maybe you've done a flip, like flipping houses is really sexy, right? You know, the HGTV and et cetera, et cetera. And I will tell you that flipping houses, I never want to flip another house as long as I live. That is the most disgusting job ever. And uh, But I'll tell you, it's made me good money and I learned a ton along the way. I think if you're still a new investor, now is the time, like I'm seeing storm, economic storm clouds on the horizon, and now is the time to reach out and, and really establish a solid network of folks who are more experienced than you are. I think read the book about um, the Bigger Pockets book I mentioned about investing in different market cycles and figure out where you are in your market cycle. Um, you know, they talk about all real estate is local, and that's true to some extent. But the reality is, if the economy tanks, commercial lending goes away, and that's a big part of how people continue to move forward with their projects. Um, so understanding what is uh, in a sort of an appropriate skill set moving forward for, for the market ahead. So I would definitely do that because what you have been doing up until now might not serve you well moving forward. So keeping your eye sort of to the future and, and what other um, strategies that you might capitalize on within the real estate investment space is probably the first piece of advice that I would give uh, for folks who are still new. And once you've established sort of the, the handful of strategies that you would be willing to use moving forward, reach out to folks, again, in your community, go to the RIA, find out, uh, or even on bigger pockets, you can connect with folks across the country who are doing what it is that you want to do and talk to them and pay attention to how other folks who have been around for a long time are preparing and heed their advice. And I think we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. And uh, you just have to know enough vocabulary and enough about the concepts to, to be able to have a conversation. But pay attention to what's going on in the future and, and uh, avail yourself of that information now so you can make prepare and make decisions. Yeah, I love all the advice that you're providing because I think it's accessible to everybody. 
Anybody can listen to a podcast. Bigger Pockets has a great podcast. Absolutely. Anybody can go to their website. All these books are, are, are relatively affordable, and if you can't afford them, you can go to your your sure. local library and get and get access to some of them. So um, it's all accessible yeah. to everybody. Educate yourself uh, and start to connect yeah. and network. And then once you're ready to actually take that first step, you'll have hopefully enough information to get started. At least hopefully sixty five to seventy five percent of that information that you need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And circling back to, to the book, The Only Woman in the Room, for the guys who are listening who think it might not apply to them, it's it's not. It's it's not um, female-specific information, So under, or straight or, or queer for that matter either. It's just information. It's the stories of women about how they overcame a bunch of different challenges and the decisions they made. I guarantee you there is a ton of technical information to be gleaned from those pages. It's not just folks' stories and, and sort of softer information. There's a lot of really interesting information in there. And because all of us are doing something different, there's kind of some overlap here and there. But, you know, there's somebody who's doing residential assisted living. And Ashley Wilson does three and four hundred unit apartment building repositions stuff in Texas. And she lives in Pennsylvania. And, and uh, you know, I'm doing a whole other tactic in a whole other market, too. And, and all of us are pretty diverse in that. And uh, there's a lot to be a lot to be learned. And certainly for my own chapter, I I really endeavored to kind of lower the emotional barrier. I wanted to lead with sort of a struggle I had about uh, passing my medical boards and how that really sort of shifted my paradigm about how I wanted to live my life. And so with I didn't necessarily want to impart um, strategies or tactics or something like that because that's not necessarily evergreen in the sense that the market cycle shifts. And again, what worked for me two years ago isn't necessarily going to work for me very well right now. But I want to, to lower the emotional barrier and say that folks can really kind of access this body of information uh, based on their own efforts. And that's really, really crucial because you can do this. I've done it. There are plenty of folks you know, who have. We are all self taught. And that's an important concept to know. 40% of us are not inheriting our wealth. We're building it. Come on, there's plenty of room. Get out on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah. well, I guess that brings up the question then, and you mentioned accredited investors. Do I have to have a ton of money to actually get into this? Sure. Love that question. And here's why. Here's a great answer. No. In <laughs> fact, there's a guy, Brandon Turner, one of the authors and, and the uh, podcast host at biggerpockets.com. And he literally wrote a book called No and Low Money Down Investing in Real Estate. Buy the book and read it. I didn't start off with money. And I use plenty of those techniques in that book as well. So no, you do not need money. Understand though, that you are going to pay for it in time. So it's time or money. And but either way, you're going to hustle. But you can get your foot in the tour, you can get started. And wherever you start, this is an important thing to understand, wherever you start on sort of the ladder of, of activities for real estate investing, each skill set you're going to carry with you. So if you're doing wholesaling, I won't necessarily elaborate on it, but if you're doing wholesaling, you know, because you don't have a lot of a lot of money, but you have a lot of time and you are passing on these deals to other investors in your market, the good news is the skill set you're learning is lead generation, which is crucial. We all need that, regardless of what we're doing. You need lead generation. And you're learning how to negotiate and talk with sellers. All that's really crucial. You're learning how to do data analysis. You will need those skills, whatever you do in real estate. So the good news is you don't need money, but you'll need to work at it. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's, uh, separates the kids from the grownups. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So start with gaining your knowledge. Eventually the rest will flow, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you working on right now? You mentioned kind of the downturn or mm. cycle in the market that you see as kind sure. of 
dark looking. <laughs> yeah, I um, you know, I I never took econ and, and um, I listened to a lot of it and I've read some books, but you know, I'm I'm not formally trained in economics at all. But I just feel like you can't get away, you can't get out from underneath printing trillions of dollars and and expect your currency to to manage. I think we're I think there are a couple of things at work that are a kind of a confluence of, of influences. One is pandemic has shifted our currency policy and monetary policy for all the you know different countries, the US included. And so there's the printing of money. And you know, if you're just classic supply and demand, you've got a lot of supply and, and that means the value of your dollar goes down. Having said that, the dollar in particular, you know, I, I think will end up being sort of the best looking house in a crappy neighborhood. <laughs> So there's something to be said for that. But the bottom line is that the purchasing power of the dollar has continued to decline over the last 27, 28 years and will continue to. So one of the things that I am trying to anticipate is how can I – how can I be smart about whatever debt I'm acquiring? And this is primarily mortgage debt is what I'm talking about. Well, it's only mortgage debt is what I'm talking about. So you know, imagine if I'm going to lock in a 30-year fixed rate uh, mortgage rate, and I get that for three percent, three and a half percent, and you know inflation might be a half or one or two percent or something. In two years, whomever my lender is has already lost money on me, right? Because I've locked it in for my interest rate. And so, you know, it, if you're playing the inflation game, you know there's something to be said for for paying attention to markets and, and currencies. So let me get back to to my project. So I moved to the Pacific Northwest. I'm here in Oregon. And uh, what I'm looking to do is acquire new homes or newly renovated homes that are beautiful. Like these are lovely, lovely homes, architectural digest kind of level homes. And one of the things that I'm doing is targeting millennial tech professionals and doing a rent by the room situation. So it's sort of taking student housing, but to a whole new level um, since they're not students anymore. These are folks who, you know, since they work in tech and they're living in Portland, they likely are making a six figure income, but they don't necessarily want to live in expensive one bedroom apartment or studio apartment and sort of reinvent the wheel for themselves. When and they can live in a shared space and that's beautiful and, and all the amenities are included. We've got maid service and household paper products and soaps and uh, you know there's a, a media center and a home gym and the, the place is all furnished and utilities are included, etc. And it's always in an awesome neighborhood. And the plan is that uh, you know folks are going to pay more for that, pay a premium because it's all in one, it's all inclusive. And from a, uh, an investor's standpoint, I could buy the house and I could make it cash flow more than I could if I were going to rent it to a family, four or five, six bedroom house. So I can have five, six individual renters and it just cash flows higher. And that will be a strategy that will continue to do well because tech is not going to take that much of a a dive, even if there's sort of a global economic downturn. And Portland is one of the great tech cities of the United States and there's still demand in in this and that's price point um, and for these individuals who are looking for a really quality uh, housing experience. And so I think that's a good situation to be in. I'm looking forward to that. And so circling back to you throughout in that definition, I want to make sure that folks understand something. Oftentimes, when when we're starting to embrace our own personal investment pathway, we don't understand some of the vocabulary. And an accredited investor, and this is kind of the trick that that Wall Street um, is perpetuating too. Folks don't realize that this that the best investments 
are actually not accessible to the lay people. And this came out of a bunch of legal rulings, I think during the kind of the aftermath of the depression, where the best investment opportunities are reserved for accredited investors. And that's a specific IRS definition. An accredited investor is someone who, one, if they're single, they make $200,000 at least a year, and they have the last two years, and they anticipate making $200,000 in the next few years. Uh, or if you're if you're married, that number is 300000 So you make 300000 in income a year. You've done that for the last few years. You're going to do so in the next couple of years. That's one way you can um, be certified as an accredited investor. The other way you can be certified as a accredited investor is that if you have a million dollars of net worth outside of your primary residence. So wherever you live is where you live. That's not it. But if you um, have a million dollars of net worth, regardless of what it is, um, you also qualify as a accredited investor. And so you are able to in, invest in opportunities that a layperson, typical folks don't even know about. And I didn't know that when I first started off. I had no idea what an accredited investor was, um, but I certainly do now. And so I often um, do investments um, and projects with folks who are only accredited investors. And, and because I'm a physician, oftentimes those folks are, are healthcare professionals um, as well. And, and, you know, anesthesiologists and ER docs or radiologists or cardiologists or, you know, hardworking doctors, you know, fighting the good fight. Um, and they have great they have great paychecks and they're looking for really a more secure investment. They're afraid of the stock market and I can offer them an opportunity to be involved in real estate, which you can, you know, property insurance and hazard insurance. So you can secure your loss with property insurance, which is great. You get income. And this is why real estate is such an ideal investment. You get income, you get depreciation, which is phantom income. Uh, you get equity pay down if you have a mortgage in place. You likely get up appreciation as well. So the property goes up in value over time and you can use leverage. So you can, you're going to buy an investment property. You could, you put 20% down and get a mortgage for 80%. And as long as your rent covers the principal interest tax insurance, that's a solid investment prospect. And so, you know, a lot of folks I work with are accredited investors at this point, And they're looking for all of those benefits that, that really come with, with, uh, with real estate. Nice. Which I think is a one aspect of real estate investing that some people forget is that they can be investors in real estate. Uh, they, uh, some people get scared away with the idea of, well, I'm going to have to flip the house or I'm going to have to be the right. person that they call when the plumbing goes out. Right. You know, it's, so right. there are, are a lot of different avenues to investing in real estate. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. I don't deal anymore. I have tenants and I know them and they know me, but I don't get any calls about trash or termites or you know, anything like that anymore because I have property management in place and I own, you know, I, I own properties in another state where I live. I'm happy to do that. There are a lot of investors who love being property managers, who love being landlords and love meeting the tenants and having that kind of, you know, close relationship with them. And they love that. It's like more power to you. That's not, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to provide safe, clean, secure housing and, uh, and know that you're happy with that and that you're paying your rent on time and in full every month. And I have a property manager in place who gets that phone call if the pipes burst or, you know, something like that. So that's awesome. it. Well, thank you, Patricia. Yeah. This has been a very interesting conversation. Uh, we've covered a okay. lot here. But if our listeners have questions about what you've done or they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Sure. So the easiest way would be to go to my website, which is www.patricia.com 
redhawkmd.com. Uh, I'm sure you guys will put that in the show notes. And on there, there's a, a opt-in form. You can certainly reach out to me. I have two um, opt-in, opt-in forms on that page. One is if you wanted to hear about articles I've written. Um, I'm a little slow on that, but they're, they're coming. Or if you actually wanted to, to connect with me and have a, you know, a half-hour Zoom uh, meeting and talk shop or something like that, there's an opportunity to do that as well. But as she said it earlier, you better do your homework first before you do your homework, <laughs> right? Before absolutely, you, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a wealth of information uh, that you've mentioned, so we appreciate that. So thank you oh, again, Patricia. We really ap- appreciate you coming on the show and sharing that information with us. I was delighted. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Queer Money is being brought to you in part by the five building blocks of a happy gay life. Join the growing community of happy, healthy, and wealthy gay men who love their lives inside and out. Get your free copy of the five building blocks of a happy gay life at debtfreeguys.com forward slash happy. From the outset, you could probably tell that Patricia isn't like everyone else. And that is 100% the reason that she's having the success she's having. Do you want that kind of success too? Then it's time to break the mold and do as Patricia has done. Take time to learn, put in the work, have grit, and go after your dreams. Thank you, Patricia, for inspiring us and sharing your story. You can read more about her success in the book, The Only Woman in the Room, Knowledge and Inspiration from 20 Women Real Estate Investors, available on Amazon. It's definitely worth the read. Here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. If you're interested in real estate investing, connect with Patricia at patriciaredhawkmd.com. If real estate isn't your thing, take some inspiration from Patricia and do the work to discover what drives you. Then, Put in the work to find other, others that are doing the exact same thing so that you can learn from them. Have a show topic suggestion or question? Then email us at questions at debtfreeguys.com. We will answer it in an upcoming episode. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.